0: Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today on our show, we have Steve Skibby, photographer, downtown advocate, and all-around Fresno guy. We talk about a lot of stuff, including the state of the photography industry, uh, historical preservation, the importance of walking, and much more. As always, if you like what you're hearing, you can support us on Patreon with a financial contribution, Or you can help spread the word about this pod through social media or by giving us a rating and review. It really helps a lot. But now, let's go meet Steve, and Baker will take us there.
1: All right Steve where do you like to eat in Fresno? oh gosh uh well i'm I'm you know I wouldn't be considered a foodie uh you know I like food uh, but I always kind of hold other people's opinions on the great places to eat uh, higher than my own however however um, my wife is uh, she has celiac disease which means she cannot have gluten uh, in any form any any amount so uh, that that limits our uh, outdoor eating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we we uh, we really like Casa de Tamales in okay. uh, Tower, although they're on hiatus during COVID. Um, we found you know we have to find the restaurants that will um, cater to that need, uh, and uh, so that's why we like uh, Lincoln in the Tower. Lincoln uh, the pub there uh, they they've done a, a good job. Uh, you know, with a very simple menu, um, and then downtown, uh, you know, we we like uh, Joe's Steakhouse, uh, we like Cockies, um, Take Three. We try to you know eat as many local places that we can, and uh, um, but th- yeah, we're not we're not super duper picky, uh, but th- there used to be a um, a Thai restaurant. Uh, in North Fresno, on Herndon and Blackstone, called Tomb Thai. I don't know if you, how long you've been in Fresno, but doesn't sound uh, familiar. It was it was what converted me to Thai food. <laughs> yeah, uh, amazing, uh, amazing restaurant. It may still be there. It might be called something else, like Thai Country or Thai Kitchen or something. But um, but we got to know the owner of the store or the restaurant, and and uh, their Thai food was was outstanding. And, converted me to be a fan of Thai food. So, but I haven't really found a place like that quite yet in Fresno. So um, it is
0: interesting how there's like uh, you know, it's like imperfect information, like, mm-hmm. like restaurants are it's, you know, I mean, Yelp is only somewhat helpful. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was, I'm just going to share experience and you can either identify or not. Um, So I have this habit um, when my wife goes out of town, I tend to want to get things that I can't normally get. Um, So when she goes out of town, I just, I get like a massive platter of wings because she Uh never wants to get wings. Do you uh, sometimes when, Uh, your wife's not around just get a giant loaf of wheat bread or something and just plow through. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, I can't bring it home. (laughs) Right, right, right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't follow the, uh, I don't follow the diet. So, uh, you know, I'll go to, uh, like Boca Taqueria in, uh, in tower or, um, you know, actually, you know, take three I don't think they have any gluten free there. Uh, but I, you know, really enjoy that. And, uh, most of the items on cockies menus, have you had their wings? I have not. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's good. I'm not a wing guy, but they're great. Their barbecue you know, sauce is fantastic.
0: It's more of kind of like uh, wings. I feel like are like, a. it's, it's, it's almost a ritual thing more than mm-hmm. actually. Cause I mean, uh, you know, sometimes wings are well done. Sometimes they're not. Um, I, you know. But if a place does it right, I'm in my happy place. Yeah. Um, yeah. So whose, whose opinions do you trust on food in Fresno? Oh, uh,
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of ask around. Uh, you know, I hear people talking and, uh, you know, friends from church or from work. Uh, you know, I've got a couple of friends. Uh, I've got a friend who's uh, he's sort of my go to for. Chinese food. So if he recommends a, a good Chinese place, I'll, you know, check it out. Um, and then, uh, you know, um, I think I see a lot of stuff online, um, you know, on social media about different places. So, um, Asada is sort of my, my, uh, judge of a Mexican restaurant, uh, or a taqueria. So I've, um, been trying, uh, Trying different, different places, and there's, there's some great ones. La Elegante in, in uh, Chinatown is fantastic, um, as is uh, El Premio Mayor, uh, kind of up near uh, Gazebo Gardens off Shields and Moroa. Um, and then, uh, but locally, uh, or closer to us, I should say, is Don Tacha Taqueria, which is on McKenzie and Blackstone. And they've been there, I think, a year and a half, maybe two years. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. So that's, I
0: would love I would love if someone made, you know, a massive list of all the taquerias mm-hmm. and like what to order, you know, that would just be uh-huh. such a such a resource for Fresno because I feel like you could you could spend your life here just going from taqueria to taqueria. Oh, totally. And I, I, I would love if someone, you know, compiled that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I kind of miss the days I lived in San Francisco for a while and I miss the days Um, because I would get the Chronicle and read it. And I would always go to the food section. I was obsessed with snobby food writers. That was just (laughs) my, I just loved just how awful they were. Um, And, you know, there's this kind of element of, uh, you know, anonymity where you don't know if the critics in your restaurant or not. Right. You know, I think that, you know, today, you know, food writers want to be known so bad. This kind of like sense of fame that you don't know, have that same kind of anonymity. And I, I just think it's such a cool thing to be able to, you know, kind of casually walk into a restaurant and see it without it being performed for you or whatever.
1: Exactly. Uh, but as soon as you
0: whip out your phone and try and take a picture of your food, it's like the restaurant's aware of what you're doing, if you. Uh-huh. Will. Uh-huh. Which leads me to my next question in um, yeah. photography. So you're you're profe- you're a, a photographer, and yes you know, photography is, is one of those industries. that's kind of in, you know, it's in kind of a change. I mean, there's still, you know, you, like photographers can still do things, Mm. you know, whether it's in, in, you know, in the production element or in the post-production that you can't do, you know, even the best app on the iPhone, you can't do that with. Um, But I've, I've heard people project, uh, you know, whether it's in journalism or in a podcast about technology that eventually the phone is just going to wipe out. You know the kind of more manual uh, photography. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the DSLR camera, while it's you know it can do a lot right now, eventually the phone is 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 actually just going to take the picture for you. You're not even going to choose where your frame moves. It's just going to be the the the, the iPhone uh, doing mm-hmm. it for you. So, where do you? I mean, do you see uh, you know phones as kind of a threat, or do you, I mean like? if you're thinking about it in terms of, you know, like in, in changes in industry, you know, like when the printing press was invented, you know, mm-hmm. the people that memorized or the scribes, you know, they were afraid for their jobs. You know, do you, do you see, do you look at an iPhone the same way as a photographer?
1: Not really. Uh, because there's, there's elements, other elements, you know, that go into photography besides the equipment you use, you know, you have a relationship with your client or your subject. I mean, that's one thing I, you know, uh, phone can't have a relationship. It's not just capturing the image, you know, and I'm talking about photography of humans, you know, portraiture, whether it's weddings or special events or that kind of stuff. And so, um, I think that'll always be a thing, but you're right. Um, you know, photography has changed, uh, drastically. Um, not just, not just with, you know, the phone, but also just digitally, you know, I started in, uh, 1985 um and that's that's when i started going to school and and learning about photography and and uh, trying my own thing and that was film that was dark rooms that was you know uh exposing images 12 24 or 36 frames at a time um you know uh, on a roll of film and so you you were limited in in what you could do and you had to be very careful you had to know what your camera was doing it was a little expensive as well, you know, processing and and everything like that. So it was a lot more complex. And I think, um, you know, that complexity was really good for me. Um, In my uh, attention span, it was good for me to, you know, have to apply, um, apply some thought to producing an image. Uh, Now, it's it's a little different. Obviously, now, you know, we have a digital camera, whether it's a you know, DSLR or a telephone, you know, or, you know, mobile phone. Um, you've got the image right there. Or you can see what you did. You can see the exposure. You can see, you know, what, you know, whatever, whatever it was that made that image, you can see all your settings and you can kind of learn from that, not to mention social media and uh, YouTube and learning from other people's lessons. There's a lot of technique sharing uh, that goes on and and that whole thing just exploded. And so I don't think it was so much the the iPhone or the, you know, the cell phone camera that um, changed photography, but more just the digital sense, uh, which opened up a a whole new realm for people. So some people came right in and got really good very quickly. Uh, Other people came right in, weren't so good, started businesses anyways. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, it's, it's changed drastically, I would say, Uh, but I don't, I don't think that the iPhone will, or the, you know, the cell phone photography will change things. It, it, it opens up new branches for people making images. Um, I mean, I've used, I've used my iPhone professionally uh, to take, you know, pictures when I didn't have my camera. Um, You know, it takes a decent image. Um, The image is what's important, not so much the tool. So,
0: yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, there's this, there's this term, uh, called a Luddite, uh, which is, uh, it refers to, um, uh, some textile workers that were very fearful of, uh, the machines that were being introduced in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so they just destroyed them. <laughs> yeah. which I, I'm a big fan of that, um, just as a <laughs> an anecdote, but, um, beyond that, um, do you think there, because there, because there's always this kind of like turn to want to go back to the old ways, You know, so you were talking about the complexity with the you know earlier methods of using or the earlier technology uh, that was available when you started. Do you think there's something like inherently better about kind of the old ways, or do you just you know do do photographers just need to move on? And Mm, you know what I mean?
1: Mm Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it really depends on the photographer. I have a lot of friends that. Uh, or a few friends, I shouldn't say a lot. I have a few friends that are really fascinated with film because they didn't grow up with film. Um, and so they're developing their own film. Um, I have another friend that shoots, uh, Polaroid and, you know, he started his own blog about shooting on Polaroid, you know, instant, uh, film. And, uh, you know, it's, so it's kind of, it depends on what the photographer is going to do with it. If they're going to develop a, a, uh, you know, develop a (laughs) develop, that's a good word, Uh, you know, to go into an area that they're going to learn a little more about the art of photography Then you know, I think it's good. I mean, I I think there's a lot, a lot of things uh, that I admire when somebody says that they're going to build their own dark room and and start doing black and white and toning prints and doing all these kinds of things. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, go for it, you know? I did it for a long time, and I'm ready to not do it. Paid your
0: dues, right? Yeah, I did my I, dues. I mean, I think there's something to said for like really understanding the process at a deep level, um, and so maybe that's the virtue in starting in kind of a more manual place. Yeah. Uh, because if you're just taking pictures with your iPhone, there's no cost to your production.
1: That's like right. You can
0: just take a billion pictures, mm-hmm. um, and you know, there's there's no real not sacrifices. Maybe the wrong word, but there's no like. Mm-hmm. You, 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 there, there's no, you don't have to pay for it. You know, you, yeah, there's no, there's not no work involved necessarily because mm-hmm. the can the phone's doing a lot for you. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I, it, my, my, my other question about photography is I, I and I, maybe this is just kind of a change in the industry. When I, when I go to Instagram and I search uh Fresno photographer, mm-hmm. sweet God, there is like hundreds that I can see, you know, 100%. and it's like, and I and I is, are there more photographers? Does social media like increase the amount of people in the industry? And like, how has that affected kind of the industry and like, yeah, you know, maybe the market for photographers? Uh huh. Because it's it's like simultaneously, people can take better photos with their phones, and there's also this like, you know, proliferation yeah. of professional photographers.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. We watched I watched it exponentially grow. So like when I was. Uh, uh, you know, I, I graduated Fresno State with a degree in photojournalism and worked for a newspaper for several years and uh, did a lot of uh, a lot of stringing for other other publications and and then uh, and then I, you know, as we as as journalism changed, journalism changed as well uh, with the, the advent of the internet and we were warned about this. Actually, I had a I had a professor at Fresno State who warned warned us and said, uh just you wait. <laughs> he was the old guy, you know. It's on his and, tombstone. Yeah, it's on his tombstone. He said, I told you. <laughs> but he he did. He said uh he said that, you know, in a few years, uh newspapers, if they don't uh, keep up with things, will be uh be you know going down and uh right. declining and and uh, photographer photography will change drastically with the advent of shooting digitally cuz back then you shot analog you know you shot film and then you developed it and then you uh scanned it into a computer and then you know that was the, that was the start of digital photography for us um was doing that and they had, you know photoshop came around and uh different ways to edit edit pictures um but you know all of this uh all this to say that you know it was uh, I could see that digital was going to take over, and that a lot more people would become photographers as as it got easier. And so, so there's less barriers to entry. Oh, totally, of. totally. Yeah, you you could buy a, a digital camera for less than a grand, and you're on your way. You know, and some software, a couple hundred dollars worth of software. Whereas when I was, you know, doing doing photography with film, you know, we had cameras, we had lenses, we had film, we had processing. We, you know, there's no software or anything, but there's I mean, all these, all these other things that you had to get, uh, in order to you know, start your career. Um, not to mention, you know, learning how to use all the equipment and now it's, it's a lot, a lot more simple. So I watched it, you know, I started my own, my own business in photography in, in 2003. Um, I watched it just, you know, fill up, uh, from 2003 to 2010, it probably tripled the number of photographers in Fresno. Uh, and, uh, some were very good. I mean, it was, it was great. We had a little group, uh, back in you know, 2007, 2008, we used to meet together and talk about our pictures and we had a, uh, but then the group got bigger and bigger and, and, uh, you know, we could no longer meet. And then eventually the, the market was saturated. And so it was very difficult to maintain a, a business, at least for me, uh, to, uh, you know, compete with people that were taking a lot less money, uh, for jobs. Uh,
0: yeah. And it feels like too, that i I mean, I don't want to make any generalizations, but it feels like there's a lot of like part-time like mom photographers in at home yeah. that yeah. just do it. And they're not, you know, they, they, or it could be, I'm not making a generalization about women, no. but like, it could no, be just, they. you know, someone doing it part-time while there's another breadwinner in the house, quote unquote um, that, you know, so they can do, you know, a shoot a month or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. it's
1: just supplemental income. Uh, Exactly.
0: Versus versus a full-time photographer.
1: Yeah. And we we saw a lot of that as well, you know, where, where people were, um, sorry about that. No, you're good. I saw a lot of people, um, you know, working those, they had a main job and then they had a side job and, you know, they started photography on the side because it's a low investment. Um, you know, could be a high yield depending on, you know, what you're, what you're charging. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, just kind of part of the, part of the thing. I don't know if that happens in other, you know, in other uh, industries, um, you know, whether mechanics do stuff on the side a lot, you know, <laughs> but, yeah, it doesn't uh, seem that way. doesn't seem that way. This. I mean, this, I'm,
0: this I'm thing. a school teacher. Sometimes teachers will tutor on the side, right. Uh, but not it, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's directly related to the service I normally provide versus kind of like, Oh, I'm just going to have a different industry that I do part time. (laughs) Um, Anyway, let's. um, I want to talk about uh, one of my favorite commercials. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this commercial, uh, it's uh, there's a a couple going on a date, and uh, the man says to the woman in the commercial, "You know, I'll I'll never move to the burbs." Um, And then they, you know, it shows them buying their house, and he says, "You know, I'll I'll never have children." and then it shows him with two children, and then he says, I'll never have a minivan, and then it shows him <laughs> washing his minivan. You know, it's kind of this, and like, what it's portraying is kind of this, you know, pattern that we all follow, but you appear to have done the opposite pattern. You were living mm-hmm. in North Fresno, and you moved to downtown. You now, there's, there's, there's a subset of our population that's moving more urban, which mm-hmm. is kind of the younger, uh, I, I wouldn't classify them all as hipsters, But you moved from North Fresno to downtown. So does that make you
1: a hipster? (laughs) Well, I'm getting closer to being a a broken hipster. You know, I'm I'm a little old to be a hipster. (laughs) Uh, I had uh, I worked with the downtown Fresno Partnership uh, back in 2012, um, and uh, the my boss there, the CEO, she she told me she goes, "What's it like being a hipster in Fresno?" I was kind of like, well, why would you call me a hipster in Fresno? She goes, well, let's see. You live downtown. You ride your bike everywhere. You know, you go. I mean, to you're the hitting common. all the boxes. You, yeah, yeah. You know, you you've checked all these boxes. And I mean, said, well, I don't know. I always thought that's what you did when you lived downtown. I mean, that was the first thing. And I've been downtown for a long time. And we, I didn't really move downtown to be hip. I think it was more of a, and it wasn't a obviously it wasn't a trend when I moved down here. I moved down here. And, 96 um, but I've been involved with some downtown stuff since the early 90s um, I will life...
0: say that is the hipster thing to say I, I was I got <laughs> here early <You laughs> yeah that's know, right. I, I was the first you know was, right. the whole neighborhood went after I got here
1: <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> you make a good point there Jordan uh, yeah maybe I should rephrase that and say no no
0: no no but well, I, I I mean you know it's it's not like you moved to the mission district in San Francisco. You moved to downtown Fresno where, you yeah. know, there's some movement, but it's not like it's, you know, yeah. it's yeah. not, it's not like Google's opening up headquarters down the street or whatever. And so it's, yeah. you know, you're, you're definitely, uh, you know, it was before the dot-com bubble. So that yeah. I mean, you're, you're yeah. way ahead of the time.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it was, you know, our draw downtown was, uh, was the neighborhood. Um, uh, you know, we've been involved with, uh, doing, uh, kids clubs with uh, world impact, which was an organization that's uh, been in downtown Fresno for a long time. And so my, my wife and I used to volunteer down here and we do a lot of walks into the Lowell neighborhood and, and, uh, you know, so we're, we got connected with that. And we, um, we saw, there were a couple other families, um, that had moved into the Lowell neighborhood, um, to be good neighbors. And we thought that was a, a pretty brilliant move. Uh, Fresno needed good neighbors at that time. There there are good neighbors in Lowell, so it's not like they're non existent but they're outnumbered by or overwhelmed with the problems that existed in in the Lowell neighborhood uh, since, you know, the the early 80s. Um, Right. uh, It was the the highest crime, the highest poverty neighborhood in in Fresno and actually in the nation at one point. Uh, It was just incredibly, incredibly needy. Um,
0: where where does the name Lowell come from? What I mean, there's not many mm-hmm. neighborhoods in Fresno other than maybe Tower mm-hmm. uh, or maybe I guess Fig. There's so the places yeah. have different names, but it feels like Lowell. That's kind of like a you know not just a yeah a locally well, old term or whatever. It seems like it's an official mm-hmm. name in some ways. some of the
1: yeah. It sort of became the name because um, the the school, the elementary school uh, that's located here is Lowell Elementary School, um, and I believe some of the people that sort of adopted Lowell as, as being a, um, a place that they wanted to see succeed, wanted to name it something. Um, it, it, you know, it had some really bad names prior to that. It was kind of called the devil's neighborhood or the devil's triangle. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was that kind of thing. And so somebody just picked the, the local school and said, okay, the school is at the center of the neighborhood and that way we can identify different places. And then, and then that sort of caught on so uh, there's the Yakomi neighborhood for Yakomi uh, school and Jefferson neighborhood Jefferson school okay. um, and we kind of look at it that way Jackson neighborhood which is uh, over like Huntington Kirkhoff um, just east of downtown that's Jackson schools neighborhood um, and it helped people kind of have a have a name for their neighborhood so um,
0: so since we're talking about historic neighborhoods i want to yeah. talk about historical preservation which is it's just something that's very popular um in you know kind of more progressive circles wanting to preserve yeah. history and stuff like that mm-hmm. um and here here's my here's my you know kind of uh question slash caution right so let's mm-hmm. imagine that i you know i've got i've got an an 81 Honda Civic, and it has 400,000 miles. And I go to this one place uh, so I can pass smog check that doesn't really pass smog. You know, he just does this thing and has me drive around the neighborhood until it works. And then he signs a little form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily comparing all historical buildings to that, but, you know, some historical buildings, um, not well insulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, some of them have, I don't know, questionable uh, earthquake, I don't know what it's called, but like, you know, when that- Yeah, that seismic
1: standards at, or- Yeah, yeah, like
0: we're to retrofit buildings and stuff. Sure. Um, and and so my question is, you know, if, if it, it, I understand the goal of wanting to preserve kind of the history in a neighborhood, but how do you balance that with like efficiency, with, you know, financial concerns in a neighborhood, <sighs> with you know i mean i have i have some friends who bought a house in downtown it's built in 1902 it's on or i think it's 1902 or 4 something like that um and they so there's all these rules for how they maintain the house which right. you know i mean it's it's on the registry so they have to do it and you know i understand it from a kind of historical preservation point of view but it makes it really hard for them to, you know, to, to do maintenance. And yeah. so the, the, and, and it almost seems like, well, if, you know, if the city's going to set such strict regulations, maybe they should be the ones to maintain the houses. <laughs> but then you have this, you know, I mean, you've got all the costs with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think the taxpayers want to pay for someone's private home uh, to be maintained. Certainly not. Um, and then the energy bills, I can go on forever. So I guess yeah. the question really is, is, um, make the case to me why <laughs> we should do it in spite of all of those, uh, Challenges with mm-hmm. uh, historical preservation
1: and like what's what's the value? Mm-hmm. Well, the value is the heritage. So um, you know, I, and i'm I, I can't go into cost because it cost depends on what you do to the building and sure, depends sure. on the needs of the building. Um, but the heritage of of a place, um, the historical society, uh, historical preservation, Society you know uses this term, this place matters. They used to have these signs that they put up in people's homes. and said, this place matters. Um, place does matter. Uh, we saw in the 60s uh, in Fresno, and particularly in downtown, a, a, a movement to remove uh, many buildings. Uh, and there were dozens of buildings that, that got the axe uh, and were raised. Um, and uh, including the courthouse, um, and some of them, they used reasons of, you know, seismic worries, you know, that there's earthquakes, but you know, that, and there's, uh, but the other thing I think that at that time Fresno was really trying to develop a modern sense because it was a farm town. It wasn't big like Los Angeles. Uh-huh. It wasn't a port city like San Diego or San Francisco, you know, um, and it was, it's surrounded by agriculture uh and i think i think there was a mentality i said you know if we modernize it you know we put these facades uh, on the old buildings and we knock down some of the ones that look old um, people will take us uh, will value uh, downtown more but what they did is they ended up eliminating a lot of the heritage of downtown so if you go to other cities you go to like have you been you've been to seattle Mm-hmm. Uh, Seattle's a big city. It's sprawling. I mean, their downtown is, I don't know how many miles long, you know, along it's, it's quite a drive, but if you look, um, uh, they have, most of their buildings are older historic buildings. If you go to San Francisco, you'll see a mixture of old and new, uh, you come to downtown, you'll see a lot of sixties era things built up. You'll see a few older ones, uh, but the significance here is that um, heritage is passed on to the next generation, um, and heritage has its value in uh, what was built. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, right? no,
0: it's it's per- I, it makes perfect sense. I mean, when so I that's... go downtown and I see the the, the current courthouse, yeah, and I see that like nasty brutalist architecture that was uh, popular in the 1670s. I just I just thought, oh god, you know, like I I went to yeah. I went to San Francisco State, and that. You know the buildings there, like you feel like you're in a Soviet satellite, you're just like sure. where you know it is <laughs> such a dark place to learn and i you know i i and in the sixties and seventies had some things going for it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if architecture could be the thing that they that well, we'll they're, home they're about sixties
1: 60s, they did well with uh, non-institutional architecture. So you, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright homes, right? Ranch uh, style houses ranch and ranch style homes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They were very thoughtful, but institutionally, <laughs> not yeah. so good. So
0: I, I, you know, and I was, I was playing devil's advocate. Of course, I mean, sure. I, I definitely see the value as a, as a person with history degrees, and you know, see the value in and not you know, just writing over our history with a new Lenar project every six months, you know, that's definitely not in my agenda. I I think the question is ultimately partly environmental too, which is like, if we're going to do this, you have to do it right. And you have to spend the money. Um, And is that money, I mean, we have to, we have to kind of bring, you know, all the big questions of like, we need to make our cities more sustainable. We need to make, you know, make them environmentally friendly. You know, those, those are, those are the questions that are in the back of my head too. So I think, I think there's just a lot of variables that have to be weighed when you're like, okay, should we spend a million dollars on this or should we put that into kind of, you know, (laughs) <laughs> to, I'll just say yes. You know, a welfare system <laughs> that supports people on the
1: line, uh, you know on the <laughs> poverty line or whatever. So it's right. it's just
0: it's just a tough equation is all. I'm yeah.
1: Trying to say. The the equation is uh if you look at other cities, uh, I mean that's the that's the best example of how to how to do your city is you look to see what worked in other cities and chances are it's going to work in your city. So you look at Detroit. I don't know if you know Detroit's story, um uh, but they were raising entire neighborhoods. I mean, it's they're just, they're just, you know, plowing everything over, uh, the, you know, the city center abandoned itself. Uh, there was a guy from, uh, Quicken Loans. I think it was the CEO of Quicken Loans uh, back in 2010 started buying up all these old buildings and, uh, he refurbished them with his own money. Uh, and, and he, he bought dozens. I mean, uh, it's the, it's it's crazy. Uh, almost rebuilt Detroit just by him buying these up. Jeez. Well, what what happened? Everybody wanted to live in the in and work in the old buildings because they have a better vibe. I mean, people are happier. It's attractive. You know, younger people want to be in a, a building that's significant and beautiful and has has uh, charm. You know, they don't want to they don't want to work in the courthouse I don't think anybody wants to work in the Fresno Courthouse <laughs> you know uh, so I think I think you know we see that happen and, and it's just a matter of uh, investing in these and then they fill up and then you know they demand top dollar I mean the, uh, they end up you know paying for themselves uh, instead of you know 75 cents a square foot for retail space on Fulton Street they'll be able to get dollar fifty you know or two dollars. Uh, which gives the property owner money to do more work, uh, and that's yeah. the, been the big, the big holdup on on uh, Fulton Street is just uh, you know they've been charging seventy five cents to a dollar for square foot, which for a downtown is unheard of, um, but it's not unheard of here because the downtown has been economically stunted for you know the last forty years or so.
0: Which you just led me just perfectly to my next question which is you know there there's 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 two ways we could talk about this there's a ways you know there's a way where you i mean kind of like where thing where you see things are going and and where you want them to go Mm -hmm. um you know and there's obviously different voices that are part of this conversation you know and Mm -hmm. whenever you're talking about redevelopment i mean craig shartan and i talked about this for a long time which is you know is you know it's it's all comes back to the uh Robert Moses question, which is, you know, should one person decide things or uh, but if you have a community to decide things, it's really tough to get stuff done uh, because you have a lot of voices and a lot of different opinions. Yeah. So sometimes you want an autocrat, but then you get autocrat solutions Mm -hmm. like giant freeways going through a neighborhood. But then at the same time, if you know, you let, you leave it to, you know, all you have to do is watch the show parks and rec and see what happens when, you know, you just let any community member, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. have a voice in how things are going to be managed. So, so I guess my question is, where do you see things where where do you see things going right now, and where
1: would you like them to go? Yeah. Well, for the last ten years, um, I've been pretty pretty happy with where they where they went. Uh, we went from a city that was making decisions about um, about how it was going to develop uh, everywhere else but downtown. Uh, there wasn't. There was an RDA, uh, you know, redevelopment agency, you know, downtown. Um, but then that that converted into um, what's called a PBID. I don't know if you've ever talked about that with Craig, but that's a property based business improvement district. So, uh, and this is what they do in in almost every downtown, and even even Visalia, you know, a small downtown has a, a business district where basically property owners pay. Uh, an assessment based on the value of their property uh, that goes in towards, uh, you know, improving the cleanliness, the security, brings events downtown, uh, you know, puts amenities, uh, you know, on streets, you know, plants, um, garbage cans, you know, new lights, these kinds of things. And all this is, um, all this is very effective. Uh, These, these things have, have always worked. Uh, there's, there's not really a P PB, bid that hasn't worked. And there's a couple hundred in this country currently. And uh, we, we started one in 2011. Uh, the City council approved it. It's, um, and so property owners uh, downtown and in a uh, section of downtown, particularly on Fulton Street, agreed to assess themselves to do this. Um, and uh, I think that's one thing. So we're, we're, that's a huge, huge step for Press Now. Uh, to, that property owners would agree to assess themselves. It's like, yeah, sure, <laughs> tax me. But it takes vision for that to happen. So um, the property owners have to go, well, here's where we want to be. And a lot of property owners aren't there yet. We still have a lot of property owners that have no idea or have no care for uh, where, a, where our downtown is headed. Uh, there are There are some property owners that are like that, and they aren 't doing anything with their buildings they 're not making any any uh, changes or they 're just not part of the game um, but uh, I think Fresno is also connected well with um, the neighborhoods uh, downtown, particularly my neighborhood uh, in the last ten uh, to fifteen years um, and uh, they started investing uh, more effort in code enforcement. Um, and connecting with the community here. Um, Lowell is a really strange community for, you know, in the scheme of, of downtown, so, or in the scheme of neighborhoods in, you know, Central Fresno and South. It's a little weird just because we, we have a very established community, very connected, interconnected community, and the city could see that, that there was interconnection, and then they would work with with uh with our neighborhoods uh and uh you know like 2009 when mary uh came in came into office uh you know one of the first things she did was had a meeting uh, a, a community meeting it was the first time a mayor had set foot in lowell school in decades uh, but they had a community meeting she brought the police department the fire department sanitation you know all Everybody all the departments were there to um, be a listening ear to the community and so we came up with a list of uh, of, of things that we wanted to improve and the and the city worked uh, with the neighborhood to improve those things, not all of them because it was a long list it was probably ninety things <laughs> so uh, but it was but see these are the things that a city can do, uh, and we demonstrated that that it's productive when that happens. Um, and so I, I predict that we'll continue to, to move that direction. Although it, you know, it kind of depends on the mayor and, you know, what his vision is. Um, hopefully we get thoughtful people in, in, uh, you know, sitting on council seats and people who work well together. That's the other thing. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing when that council all agrees on something and, and you you start to see things happen uh, with that. Um, it's great to have people in planning uh, that have a great idea for uh, you know a great vision for fresno and and uh, you know and particularly you know when they're able to see the value in restoring um, what's old I think that's that's one of the other things
0: yeah i think uh, I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of uh, you know, change and political change because they watch too much like national news where yeah. it's a performance and the ideological differences are made into, made to be much starker than, you know, they maybe are um, just for the performance of it. Whereas I think the municipal level, you can, you you change really does happen. And it really, you know, people do, there's a lot of decisions at the local level that are not ideological. That it's yeah. just it's not a really a dis- disagreement about what it's a bit disagreement about how how um, right. you know and I think that um, that presents an opportunity for you know listeners that are maybe like frustrated like they think the world is coming to an end politically well maybe you should just get involved locally um, and you know you could really do things that are going to have pretty immediate change uh, for your environment um, and what whatever your decision in the uh, you know presidential election. Uh, is, is like, I mean, it it could affect your life, but it's much, your life is much more likely affected by your mayor and your city council and uh, stuff like that. Um, And so that's, that's my small uh, advocacy, you know, advocacy for, you know, being more involved with local government and seeing what your neighborhood is doing and what's going on in your area. I want to finish, well, I've got two more questions, but my first, my last major question for you is about walking. Uh, one of my favorite artists, Edvard Munch, uh, famously painted The Scream mm-hmm. um, after going on a walk in Oslo with some friends. Uh, he sat mm-hmm. down on a park bench and wrote a poem that became The Scream. Um, and there's lots of famous artists. Van Gogh would go for walks. Uh, walks are just kind of, you know, I I could go on and on with all the people that took walks. Um, and they used it as kind of like a, a you know, a time for, uh, you know, to have thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. isolated from other people or, you know, from all from now, I mean, the constant internet and phones and whatever else. Uh, so why do you take walks and uh, what do you get out of
1: them? Yeah. Uh, that's a a really good question. Um, well, first of all, I live in a walkable part of Fresno, so I want to take full advantage of that. Uh, second of all, I'm an extrovert, (laughs) so I really enjoy meeting people and seeing, seeing people and, and, uh, you know, my wife is just the opposite. She enjoys uh, reading uh, about people. And so, uh, you know, that's, um, we do go on walks together. But I think, um, you know, for me, it's, it's uh, connecting with my community, um, you know, living in the different parts of town. You just don't have the opportunity to walk. I mean, there's just, uh, you know, your sidewalk kind of ends I mean, have you ever walked Blackstone? Well, not too many people have. <laughs> yeah. you, know? yeah. you ever walked Shaw Avenue? Yeah. Probably not. Herndon? Never. You yeah. know, these I don't are all... often like to walk on the side of freeways, which is yeah. basically what Blackstone is. Yep. And Shaw. If you've been on Shaw, you know, it's like 60 miles an hour right, right next to you on the sidewalk. And so, um, you know, so what we've created is these expressways, and you know, instead of making a place where people could walk or ride their bike or you know use other alternate forms of transportation, which are uh, healthier for you and for the environment and for everybody around. I mean, it's it's just a it's a better thing. And
0: on um, the Blackstone thing, not to interrupt yeah. you, but on the Blackstone yeah, yeah. thing, you know, it makes me crazy about
1: that. And you know, mm-hmm.
0: I've talked to, um, I was talking to. Um, the leader of the Better Blackstone Association yeah. a few episodes ago. And, you know, he was telling me that, uh, you know, the plans to add some bi- protected bike lanes and stuff. And it makes perfect sense because the 41 is the expressway. You that's don't need a second expressway that runs parallel to it. Mm-hmm. It's just, a, it's it's it just makes it into, a, I, I, I mean, that's why the 41 was built, right? To make a more fast Blackstone, basically. So it, it it seems like a lot of these expressways are not, useful
1: anymore Mm -hmm. no you have a good point i mean the other thing is i mean don't you you feel better when you're going through an area where people are walking around you go on olive avenue i mean you go in the tower district and Olive doesn't have the greatest walkable it does have sidewalks right Uh, but they're not particularly wide uh particularly in some spots some spots you know there's restaurants along there there's shops along there Um, you just feel better when you see people out and about and, and, uh, you know, there. And so um, I, my walks take me through my neighborhood um, to through tower. Um, I tend to walk pretty far (laughs) uh, into the Fresno high neighborhood. And then um, if I'm walking my dogs, I have to take them a lot farther. Um, I'm a fairly new dog owner. In the last year, we got two German shepherds and these guys need walks. Yeah, they those need, need to, walks for sure. They need to go out. They need to get get things, or they just you know tear up the backyard. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I found uh, for their psychology and for my own, uh, it's been good to to get them out. So we've we've walked all the way from downtown to uh, Old Fig Garden, um, and or I'm sorry, Fig Garden Village. We walked all the way to Whole Foods. Uh, which is not either um, pedestrian family. Once you get to Shaw Avenue, it it becomes a free for all. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then you cross and then, and then there's, I don't know. There's just a lot of, it's, it's just not friendly. It's made for cars. Uh, And uh, yeah, not, not very good for dogs either. Um, But uh, we walked back Um, and, uh, um, but Fresno high neighborhood, you walk along Van Ness, you got, uh, you know, big median in the middle. If you want to walk your dogs in the middle, you can do that. Um, people are generally driving slower there. Um, lots of other, you'll see, you know, a hundred other people out walking on a Saturday morning. Um, and, uh, just a, a very, very pleasant walk. And the through tower, uh, is, is great too. I was going to say the other, the other thing is, um, you know, in Fresno, Fresno can be oppressive at times with its weather, with it, the smoke recently, I mean, that's not a Fresno problem, that's a California problem, but, um, you know, the discouragement of, you know, you see empty houses or you see some of the problems that exist in the urban realm, Uh, one of my favorite things is to walk by great architecture, you know, these homes that were designed with a purpose and somebody thought about how they wanted to you know, how they, how they wanted it to look, you know, to have a, a specific design. They're honoring a, a, a heritage or a tradition. And so, uh, for my psyche, <laughs> uh, I feel a lot better about Fresno when I start, when I see good architecture. Um, I wouldn't be able to experience that if I was walking uh, probably north of Shaw, although there are some nice homes north of Shaw. Um, there's something about walking through a uh, tower, old Fresno High, um, you know, into Old Fig and and seeing these old places uh, that were thoughtfully, thoughtfully built. So I've I've got a buddy who lives over on Pine, uh, just west of Wishon, and uh, he's got a great Italianate uh, house. It's part Italianate and I don't know, it's kind of a colonial vibe, but it's just I walk by and I'm like, oh yeah, man, that your house is doing me good. <laughs> you know, just just walking by the house, you know is it's been fun. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's kind of been, been my thing about, about walking. Uh, I ride a bike too. So, uh, yeah. if I don't feel like walking,
0: you know, and, and when you were talking, I had so many thoughts coming up. I mean, I remember, um, when I, cause I, you know, I spent the last half of my childhood in Bakersfield and mm-hmm. it's similarly, you know, unwalkable community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to San Francisco, you know, right after high school and, Um, I immediately because I'm a raging nerd I was taking uh, uh, walking tours of San Francisco um, through the library Uh, so the public library offered these like free walking tours and you'd have these like retired Berkeley historians walking you around San Francisco explaining stuff to you and I apparently was the only one site that was not a septuagenarian that was like thought it was cool so it was me and a bunch of old women and uh, which was f- which was fine you know it' was perfect way to spend your Saturday morning um, and I remember we went on this one tour through this neighborhood called Pacific Heights um, and it's kind of a very old kind of ritzy neighborhood um, and there was we were just walking down the street uh, and this man emerges from this total mansion and he comes out and he's like and he sees like the tour guide kind of talking about the history of the street he's like oh you know um i th- i use this house to house my artwork um do you guys want to come in and see and so we go into this house and this this guy's you know i mean i don't i don't know who he was he gave us his first name that's it and uh just showed us his you know an artwork collection that you know i'm sure is somewhat unparalleled in many hmm. places and it just happened by walking around a city, you know. And I, I think those kind of like random happenstance. I mean, that's that's less likely to happen in Fresno, but like, you know, I think being out and walking around, you see things differently, right? You see totally. because when you drive past something, you can't really appreciate it because you're going mm-hmm. you're going sixty miles an hour on Shaw or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first thing that I I was thinking about. And the second thing I was thinking about was just like this whole concept of being a spectator. You know, and I think I think there's two kinds of. Unfortunately, uh, we've turned into two kinds of people: spectators or complainers. Mm-hmm. You know, people mm-hmm. that assume that a city has to be the way it is because it is the way it is. You know, and yeah. if it is that way, then it's probably that way for a good reason. Um, <laughs> and then there's the people that just want to just complain about how much it sucks that <laughs> you know people drive sixty miles an hour down Shaw. Yeah. And I think both of those are just so. I mean, one of those is cynicism, and one of those is just pessimism. And I yeah. I think that we need a lot more optimism, which the, you know, kind of the driving force under optimism is that can change if you want it to. Yeah. And things sometimes are the way they are by accident, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. by a bunch of market forces that weren't working towards the human good that were just working yeah. towards different goals. And so I think uh, that by looking at through it through your lens, which is seeing like, well, what do we want this to be? And how do we get there mm-hmm. is is a, is a great way to approach it no matter what neighborhood. It I mean, if you're in Mm-hmm. Here in North Fresno, you know, you can have the same kind of impact. You know, it's all just a city, right? You know, and mm-hmm. there's more historical buildings towards downtown, but, you know, you mm-hmm. can also equally advocate for more bike lanes in other parts of the city or whatever That's you well, want yeah. to do. So I want to end with uh, talking yeah. about uh, books. If you have any uh, hmm. book recommendations, if there's anything you've
1: been reading that you found interesting. Oh. Uh, you know, I just started reading, uh, uh, let's see, Black New Yorkers. Oh, black New Yorker, and uh, and my wife and I took our kids. We did a, um, a a historical tour of Washington D.C. and then also New York. Uh, we took our kids for basically, you know, how uh, schools go to Washington D.C. and do that.
0: I'm an eighth grade teacher, so I oh, you're I an eighth do, grade teacher. Okay, I do that. I do that thing. Yeah, uh, we, we use one of those travel companies, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's such a cool uh, tour for that age group.
1: Yeah, and and so we did that. We had, uh, my wife is a homeschooler. She, uh, you know, taught in the public realm and private realm and she's, she's been all over, but she's, uh, we have an eighth grader, uh, who's homeschooled and, and, uh, and then she also homeschools another, another boy. Um, uh, and, uh, so we took him took him to Washington, DC. Um, and, uh, and then after that, we, since we're in the neighborhood, we decided to go to New York city. So, uh, drove up to Manhattan and stayed in in uh, Lower Manhattan, um, and I, you know, that was another walking experience. Both those cities, uh, however, however, we were there right as COVID uh, hit, and so they started closing everything down. So we weren't able to do, you know, we weren't able to go see, uh, you know, a Broadway show, and we weren't able to go on the, you know, all the big the yeah. big attractions. So we did a lot of walking. Um, and, uh, you know, we walked 16 miles in one day, just, just checking things out. You know, we wanted to see the Washington park neighborhood, you know, um, but, I, but one of the things I was interested in was, uh, how African-Americans, uh, populated New York and what, what it was like, um, you know, for them. So I, I I'm a few chapters in, uh, but it's fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. There's some,
0: there's some really great, uh, you know, African American history. Uh, uh, what's, um, there's one I'm forgetting her books on my shelf over here. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of in the same vein of what you're talking about. It's, uh, the warmth, warmth of other suns. Um, it's about the great migration kind of in the Jim Crow era. And I yeah. think she just came out with a new book called cast, um, that, is I'm, you know, I think it's a Oprah book club or something. Um, and I, I I think, you know, given all of the, you know, uh, protests and everything going on and, you know, there's, there's a bunch, I will say this, there's a bunch of uneducated people on all the sides. sides. Um, And I'm a more progressive person myself, but I, I would say equally on the progressive side of the question, there's a lot of, uh, you know, ignorance about the history of things. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what you're reading about is essentially, you know, when they, when, when African-Americans left the South after the radical reconstruction, mm-hmm. you know, and they entered in these new, you know, giant urban metropolises in the North, you know, what, what that history looked like. And it's yeah. it's something to, there's something to be read about that. I mean, I, I, yeah, I could go on forever, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks again, Steve. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I, you know, we can probably keep talking forever if we wanted to <laughs>
1: pleasure talking to you. So yeah, you've got some great observations as well. So thank
0: you. All right. Best. All right. That was our show. Stay tuned for our next episode dropping sometime next week with the director of Namaste for Compassion, Nayantara. That's a great interview and I'm excited to give it to you. Until then, have a wonderful week.